World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson. Uh, This is a show where we are capturing the stories of World War II veterans, and we are adding in Korean War War veterans as well. Uh, But this show precipitated from a trip that I was involved in in 2016 that took a group of four D-Day veterans to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. And returning, we thought, these stories, we need to capture them, and that is how we came up with the World War II Project. We're thrilled to have on the line with us Thomas Hoke. He was a medic, a combat medic, with the 87th Infantry in Patton's 3rd Army. Welcome, Thomas Hoke. What? Welcome. Thank you. Okay. And your daughter, Becky, is there helping you as well. So thank you, Becky. Yes, she is. Okay, great. Thomas, let's start with where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Emmitsburg, Maryland. That's about 10 miles south of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. And where were you when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Do you remember that day? When you heard Pearl Harbor was bombed. Pearl Harbor, we were playing soccer down on the community field at that time. We had a boy there who had a brother in Pearl Harbor, he almost went berserk. I remember that very well. Did his brother survive the attack, or was he killed at Pearl Harbor? Survived and come back to Emmitsburg, worked in the post office, married and worked in the post office, and retired from the post office. Wow. Okay. Do you? How old were you in 1941? Do you remember? I, I don't know. I was I was nineteen and forty three. You were nineteen and forty three, so you were probably seventeen years old. Uh, when uh, so, were you still in high school? Oh, I graduated when I was sixteen. Oh, you did nineteen forty. Okay. <laughs> they don't do that very often these days. Uh, I tell you what, Thomas. When did you uh, join the military? Join the army. I was drafted in February the 12th, given one week to get my affairs in order and told to report to Fort George G. Meade, Baltimore. And was that in 1943? That was in 1943. Okay. So you had a week to get things in order, and then you uh, reported. What was boot camp like? What'd you say? What was boot camp like? Huh? What was boot camp like? Oh, we... Uh, we first reported to Fort Meade. They gave us a short haircut, so we didn't worry about that. We'd give it a duffel bag to put all our clothes and equipment in that we would use, and then we were put on a coal-fired steam engine and uh, headed south. It took us about two days and a night to get to Mississippi, where I joined with other 19-year-olds from all 48 states to form the 87th Infantry Division. Okay, and so what was training like, Thomas Hoke? We, t- we took uh, 13 weeks of infantry basic training, which consists of military courtesy, close order drills, long hikes, sleep mountain tents, crawl through the infiltration course, firing the rifle 
on the rifle range, firing the M1, and uh, digging a foxhole, getting in it, having tanks run back and forth across it. So we, we uh, practiced that kind of stuff for 13 weeks. You know, I've never asked, I've never thought about this, digging a foxhole. I hadn't thought that there was an art about that. What did you, how did they teach you to dig a foxhole? How did they teach you to dig a foxhole? Well, you, they, we had a little shovel, and they said dig, and you got in it. When you thought it was deep enough, you got in it, and they had tanks run back and forth across you. <laughs> if you were deep enough, you were fine. <laughs> yeah, you would certainly want to make sure that it's deep enough. And a foxhole, was that two guys that would fit in a foxhole? Uh, up up in the bulge where it was so cold and they could not dig in the ground, to, then they bodied up two men to a hole in the snow. But other than that, it was usually just one man to a foxhole. Okay. And uh, they ran the tank over the top of you. Was was that thrilling when you had a tank run over the top of you? Tank uh, didn't bother us. Our hole was deep enough, and the broad track on the tank didn't sink down into our hole. Okay. Did you have other brothers that were serving in World War II? I had one brother serving in the Air Corps for 28 years. Okay. And, um, okay, so what, was your brother older or younger than you? Uncle John was older. Okay, he was. My brother was five years older than me. Okay, how did your mother feel about having her sons both in the service? Did you ever have a conversation with her? She uh, never felt any fear that we wouldn't return. She figured that we would safe and uh, we would return, which we did. Okay, so let's. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell us about basic training? Well, not really. It wasn't pleasant. Uh, uh, but after uh, 13 weeks of infantry basic, we started uh, uh, training as first aid men or medical aid men. We had four doctors in our outfit. We had cooks, we had quartermaster, we had 10 ambulances and about 50 litter bearers. I was a part of a litter bearer platoon. Okay. And uh, did you choose, did you want to be in uh, this platoon, or were you just assigned that? What? Did you want to be in it, or were you assigned? I uh, I don't know how I got there. I, I was assigned there. I had no choice. Okay. So you're, you're, let's say you now you have finished basic training. What happens after that? Well, uh, we trained until... Uh, October, and then we went on Tennessee Maneuvers, which was simulated warfare. We'd come upon a patient with a card stating what was wrong with him, and we were graded on how we treated him and how we got him back to the first aid camp and how they treated him and how the ambulance drivers treated him. It was strictly a a point deal where they were giving you so many points for your actions. Okay, and how long were you in the the Tennessee maneuvers? Tennessee until February of forty four. Okay, February forty four. Okay, so February forty four, D Day was in June. What hap- What did you do between February forty four and D Day, June sixth, nineteen forty four? In 
February of 44, we'd now been in the service about one year. We lost a lot of men. And uh, OCS, Officers Candidate School, had closed down because the Army figured they needed soldiers more than officers. So they transferred these bright young men into our outfit. Well, we have to train them as first aid men. So we spent until November of, the, of that year training them to become medics. Okay. During that time, uh, Normandy, D-Day occurred. Uh, what did you hear about D-Day? What's your thoughts about D-Day? I, I was uh, laying in South Carolina, uh, had the radio on when we first heard of it. I had two wishes. I didn't want to go to South Pacific, and I didn't want to be on the D-Day invasion. They both worked out. <laughs> yeah, um, D-Day invasion was something else. So you heard that the D-Day occurred, uh, and were the reports that it had been successful, or what ha- What were the reports that you heard? What reports did you hear? Uh, well, I just, uh, very, very little. I just heard that the D-Day invasion had started, and that uh, uh, that was about it. The radio didn't carry very much news on it, really. Okay. So now you have been training. You are a combat medic. And uh, I've only had the honor of interviewing one other combat medic, so my questions may be somewhat uh, elementary. But my understanding is that you typically did not have weapons. Is that correct? We were, according to the Geneva Convention, we could not carry weapons. Uh, Although in the South Pacific, uh, they didn't go by the Geneva Convention, and the medics in the South Pacific was armed. Okay, what now you're a 19-year-old kid. Beg pardon. Okay, you are a 19-year-old kid and you have trained as a litter bearer uh going into battle without a weapon. What went through your head as as you were realizing all of this? Well, I'm going to tell you a little story. There was an officer come to our aid station early in the war carrying a 32 automatic with two 9-bolt clips. One of the men took that from him and gave it to me, and I kept that in my bedroll back at the uh, aid station until I heard of the Malmody Massacre. When I heard of the Malmody Massacre and the uh, American troops said, take no prisoners, I knew the Germans weren't going to take any prisoners either, so I carried that 32 in my pocket from then on. It was against the Geneva Convention. It was a court-martial offense if I got caught, but I figured if I'm going down, I'm going to try to take someone with me. Okay. Now, backing up, I'm not familiar with the massacre that you just talked about. Could you explain that to our listeners? Explain the Malmody Massacre. The Malmody Massacre was the Germans had captured, uh, I think, around 80-some American prisoners. They lined them up in a snow-covered field and started machine gunning them. Some of them got away is how we got the word as to what happened. But, uh, and also later on, I think it was about eight uh, colored truck drivers uh, assassinated the same way. That clearly is against the Geneva Convention, yes? Yes, it is. Okay. So you'd heard this, and you decided that you certainly wanted to have something to protect yourself. Uh, when uh, Thomas Hoke, what, what was your first battle? Where were you? Where, where did you first see action? Our our first action was in the yeah. 
Oh, heaven sakes. Uh, we relieved the 106th Division in the, in the forest. What was it? The name of the forest. Okay. Wasn't the Ardennes, was it? Uh, it uh, just, uh, uh, it, we took a... Oh, that's we took okay. a terrible beating in there. In fact, the press never let the public really know how bad a beating we took in the Hurchin Forest. Uh, we relieved the 106th Division in the Hurt and helped push the Germans out of France. Okay, and so that was your first battle? That was uh, our first assignment, yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, what, I mean, certainly our listeners are interested in hearing your stories about the battle. What would you like to tell them? What do you want them to know? We want the people to know about the battle. Which battle? You, you talking about the Hurston Forest? Yes, your first battle. Well, the, it, that was, we suffered so many casualties that the press did not let the public know how bad that was. So uh, uh, that, that uh, actually, that was the worst battle that I was in when it comes to a wounded and, and, and dead people. So, Thomas, you are a litter bearer in this battle, and so does that mean that you go out onto the battlefield and you, you find our soldiers and get them off the battlefield, or what did you do exactly? Our job was to follow the 347th Infantry Regiment, and uh, we treated the wounded. The, most of the wounded would already be treated by the regimental aid men, but if not, we were trained to treat them, and in times when really had heavy casualties, we moved right up with the infantry. Our job was to stop the bleeding, keep them warm so they don't go into shock, and get them back to our aid station so our doctors could tend to them as fast as we could. Okay. Now, we uh, have interviewed a woman who was an Army nurse right behind the the uh, front lines, and she said that uh, many times when they got the soldiers that they, the soldiers were in shock, and they immediately tried to get plasma into them, uh, which, in essence, were trying to save their life. Um, so just a comment. Any Anything you want to say about that? I, I, I don't know, really. Okay. I, I'm not following you too good, but the, our big thing was keep them warm so they don't go, stop the bleeding and keep them warm so they don't go into shock. And usually... Within 15 or 20 minutes, we could have them back at our aid station where the doctors could take over uh, looking at them and treating them. Okay. Were you ever shot at uh, during this first battle as you were trying to help our soldiers? You ever shot at? I I don't think uh, really shot at, uh, although I heard bullets whistling by me more than once, but I don't think I was a target. Uh, We... uh, our, our first assignment, uh, the 347th was the first unit of the 87th Division to serve in German territory. There was a hill there that they wanted us to take. Germans were dug in at the top, and they left our troops get part way up the hill before opening up. They wounded some. They did not shoot at the medics who were treating the wounded. But if another soldier raised up, he immediately drew fire. Well, they lay on that hill three, three and a half hours before someone called in air support. A P-47 and a P-51 come in, and when they stretched the German positions, our men were able to get down off the hill. It took two days and a night of constant artillery barrage before our men were able to take that hill. They got to the top. The Germans had pulled out. 
Wow. Okay, so that is your first battle. Uh, After the Hurston Forest, that was the first battle in Germany, on German territory. Okay, okay. Uh, at this particular point in time, do the people back home know what's going on? Are you able to write letters back to your family? Or what kind of communications did you have back to the States with those that you love? All, all mail was censored. You could not say where you were. You could say you were somewhere in Germany. That was it. Uh, you couldn't say where you were or what you were doing. Everything, all the mail was censored. Okay. And did you did you have a girlfriend back home by any chance when you went went into the service? Uh, I was, I was, yeah, halfway. I was writing to a girl while I was in the service. Okay. Doesn't sound like much came of that, though. So, okay. So, hey, uh, Thomas Hoke, I tell you what, we're going to go to break. Before we do that, I need to give a shout out to one of our sponsors who we uh, so greatly appreciate that. And that is Hooters Restaurants. And, of course, the Super Bowl is coming up. And the big question is, where will you watch the game? Well, Hooters, of course. Hooters is your game day headquarters. You can watch the big game at Hooters, and specials start at $10 for a draft and 10 boneless wings. And if you come into Hooters during the big game, you can enter to win a brand new 55-inch HDR TV. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have Hooters wings delivered right to your doorstep. So try their new smoked wings. They are delicious. They're only half the calories. Or And order your Hooters to go or have them delivered right to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the Americhicks. We are talking with Thomas Hoke, World War II combat medic with the 87th Infantry. This is the Americhicks with Kim Munson. We will be right back. We'll have more of the World War II project in just a moment. Hey, welcome back to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website, americhicks.com. Sign up for our emails. We do a beautiful email each week highlighting uh, these particular shows. We are the Americhicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Our World War II Project precipitated from a trip that I was involved in a couple of years ago that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. And standing on the beaches with these uh, veterans, we realized that these stories need to be told. They need to be captured. And so hence, the World War II Project was born. So we have on the line with us Thomas Hoke, just a young kid, 19 years old. Uh, these 19-year-old kids, they saved the world. And uh, we are should be ever grateful to them for doing so. But Thomas Hoke was a combat medic with the 87th Infantry. And he just described his first battle, and he ended up with Patton's Third Army. Uh, so let's go on from uh, you fought your first battle. You said it was a tough battle, Thomas Hoke, uh, to take that hill. It took a day and a half, two days. What happens after that? You've taken the hill. What happens after that? Well, after uh, we pushed them over, we uh, attempted to take that hill that I'd spoke about where the uh, – Germans did not fire at our medics who were treating the wounded. After that, we were pulled back in reserve. And uh, the 312th engineers were not far from us, and they had cleared a minefield and stacked the mines up in normal position. Well, we heard a terrible boom and went to see what happened. I saw parts of a man's body high overhead on the electric lines. Young cow blowed halfway up a tree. Ten or twelve civilians had to be hit by a flying metal. We never could find out who went in there and blew them 
those mines. If it was an engineer, it was kept strictly quiet because I never could find out who did it. So that's just another another thing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that- After that, uh, we went over to the Siegfried Line. Uh, Hitler didn't think that could be breached. It was fortified with barbed wire, uh, dragged teeth, pill boxes, pill boxes located so there was no one area that wasn't covered by a pill box. And uh, our troops were outside fighting, and Germans were in the pill boxes, and we were suffering some quite a few casualties. But we found out that if you kept hitting a pill box with heavy artillery, it would crack. And once it cracked, the Germans were quick to come out and surrender. So uh, we were up there, and there was several empty pill boxes there. So night was falling, and myself and some other litter bearers decided we'd spend the night in a pill box. Uh, we'd be handy if there was any casualties that we could take them right away. And uh, we just started to settle down when I heard what I thought was a German, talking German coming down towards it. So I figured, well, the war is over. I'm a prisoner. I can't run. I can't hide. Don't even have a stick of wood to defend myself. When in come a boy named Emery Summy, he was from Pennsylvania, Lancaster area, the uh, Amish country. I said, Summy, what's going on out there? He said, well, I don't know of anything. Why? I said, I thought I heard a German coming down here talking. Oh, he said, the captain had just informed me I'm to be your interpreter. And I was practicing my Pennsylvania <laughs> Dutch out loud. Oh, my gosh, Thomas. So, so, when we got done talking to him, he didn't practice his Pennsylvania Dutch out loud anymore. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Uh, that's for sure. That's quite a story. Uh, so you spent the night in this pillbox. Uh, what would be the next story you'd like to share? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, we we uh, we were on the way after after we got across the Rhine River, Moselle River, and the Rhine River. Uh, well, before we got there, we were on the way to them, and uh, there was a small river there. I don't know the name of it. It had a bridge across, but the bridge was zeroed in by a German fire. You couldn't use it. Our troops was on one side fighting, taking some casualties. So I said, I want two men on the other side, and I want two men in the creek, and I want two men here loading them on the ambulances. Nobody made a move. That meant it was my move. So I stepped into the creek. A boy named Thomas LeDuke from uh, Ticonderoga, New York, stepped in with me. Two others took off their clothes, crossed the creek, redressed, and started carrying them. We was in business. We stayed in that creek from about 4.30 in March in the afternoon to about 4 o'clock the next morning. We got back to the aid station. I kept the stove warm the rest of the night, but we had no no severe concussions or anything from us. So okay, now I'm not totally following you. I bet our listeners are. But so why did you get into the crook? Crick is that because you were trying to help our soldiers, or what were you doing exactly? Somebody had to carry patients across that creek. We couldn't use the bridge. It was under fire. I got it. So somebody had to carry the patients on the litters across that creek. So that's what LeDuc and I were doing. And you did that from 4.30 till what time? About 4 o'clock next morning. Wow. That's something else. It, it was warmer standing in the water than it was getting out on the bank. Wow. And then were you able to warm up when you finally got back to the stove, or were you guys just bone-chilling cold? 
No, we we got warm up. Once you go back to the aid station, they had stoves there that we could get next to and warm up. Okay. That's fascinating. So let's take it from there. What uh, what was your next uh, thing that you did, uh, Thomas Hoke, World War II veteran? What was the next thing? Next. Well, uh, next thing was uh, we crossed the Moselle River at Koblenz on golf uh, boats. B Company was crossing at another position, and uh, they had a boat sunk with three of their medics in it. They rescued their medics, but they... Never forgot their cold bath, but the infantry had done a wonderful job. We crossed with a heavy smoke cover furnished by the artillery, and we had no casualties at all. Everything went fine. The next thing was cross the Rhine River, and we crossed that at Bopart. I was high on the bank with uh, an ambulance and, and some ambulance, uh, some litter bearers, and uh, we crossed that on uh, Pontoon Bridge. And as it broke daylight, the uh, Engineers come down to tear down their bridge. Well, a machine gun on the bank opened up. It had to be friendly fire. Opened up, wounded two of these uh, engineers. So I turned to one of my squad leaders and I said, we'll not risk four men going down there. You and I'll go down and treat these engineers. He said, I'm not going. Well, Sergeant Martin, the ambulance driver, was there and he heard that. And he, without a moment's hesitation, said, I'll go with you. So he and I went down, treated their leg wounds, got them up to his ambulance, and he took them back to the aid station. Later on, when I got back, I checked with the captain. He said they'd be fine. But uh, you didn't make somebody mad over there because you never knew when he was going to shoot you. Wow. Okay. Boy, this is quite the stories uh, as, of heroism. I, I'm just, I'm really enamored by this. So, the Rhine River. Now, one thing we haven't talked about, but that you were part of Patton's Third Army, right? Am I understanding that correctly? Patton's Third Army. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Did you ever see General George Patton? Twice. I didn't like him. I didn't talk to him. I didn't want to talk to him. But he was no coward. He was right out there where the fighting was. Is there any particular reason that you'd like to share why you didn't like him? Yeah, I didn't like him because he got a lot of men killed. Everywhere Montgomery was scheduled to go, Patton had to beat him there. And he got a lot of men killed through that action. Yeah, and I bet as a medic, yeah, that really hits you um, hard. Um, Okay, so you've talked about this particular story, which is absolutely amazing. You said, I'm going down to get him. And somebody said, no, I'm not going, but Sergeant Martin helped you. Uh, So you've saved some more lives there. Uh, what's what's the next thing that happened, Thomas Hoke? Well, once once Patton got tanks across the Rhine River, he'd run them tanks as far as they go, as fast as they go, usually to the run out of fuel. Well, that way, our aid station could catch up with them. Well, we saw that we couldn't keep up with his tanks unless we did something. So we split our, our aid station in two parts. One would set up and operate. The other one leapfrog it and go ahead. And by leapfrogging one after the other, we were able to keep up with Patton's tanks. Okay, and in doing so, now his tanks, there was also uh, walking infantry with those tanks, right? Uh, explain to our, explain to our listeners. Was, yeah, they were trying to stay behind the tanks and advancing with the tanks. Uh also, on April the 11th, I was on an advance party when we raided the Buchenwald concentration camp. 
you smelled it before you got to it. Uh, the guards had already left. The prisoners would not come out thinking it was a trap. Once we identified ourselves as Americans, then they were all over us. They wanted food. They couldn't handle our rations. We gave them our chocolate. We gave them our cigarettes. We gave them our powdered drinks. Uh, there was too many to treat, and there was too bad a shape. The only thing we could do was to get word back to the rear, to get trucks up there, to get them people back to the uh, hospitals. If you ever go to Washington to visit the Holocaust Museum, that's very true to what I saw over in Germany. Okay, so you're a young kid, and you are in the advanced team that uh, came up on Buchenwald, and, and you said the Germans have left... What went through your mind, Thomas Hoke, as you started to see the people that had been imprisoned there? What went through your mind when you saw the people? I, I don't I don't know. It, it was just so sickening and, and so stinking that you just didn't want to be there. Uh, our general tried to get credit for liberating it, but we happened to have one tank from Patton 6 armored with us, so you know who got the credit for liberating <laughs> that. But it was that bad that uh, General Eisenhower came out and made the people of that small town, which wasn't too far from that camp, come out and look at them. They claimed they didn't know anything about it, but he made them come out and look at those prisoners. I know that. You know, Thomas Hoke, I remember hearing that uh, General Eisenhower uh, had the, you know, the people of the villages come and see what had been going on there. So that I, I think, in a way, so that it was that there were eyewitnesses that they could not deny that it never happened. Um, I'd been told that that was a good move by Eisenhower. What do you think? Yeah, uh, that little town of Weimar or Weimar, I don't know how it's pronounced, wasn't very far from the concentration camp. They had to know it was there. I mean, gee, no other way could they well, it just had to know, that's all. Okay. So, again, I want to. Uh, Reiterate, you are just a young kid, and it was young men like you who liberated Europe and stood against the Japanese in the Pacific Theater. And uh, so we're talking with Thomas Hoke. He was a combat medic with the 87th Infantry, Patton's Third Army. Uh, Anything else you want our listeners to know about Buchenwald? No, not really, except uh, I was invited on a five-day trip back to Germany. And I said, no, and somebody wanted to know why. And I said, well, I don't have very pleasant memories of, of that. So, I mean, uh, that's, what do I go back and say, here's where I picked up a man with a broken leg. Here's where a woman was shot in the stomach. Here's where one had his jaw blowed off. I don't need to renew that. No, that's, that's for sure. So, okay, Thomas Hoke, after Buchenwald, uh, what happened after that? Well, after that, we uh, kept on pushing towards Czechoslovakia, and uh, we'd stop one evening, uh, and one of the boys come up to me, from he was a boy from New York, come up to me and said, Sarge, you got to come down here with me. I said, I'll be down there a bit. No, you got to come right away. I said, is that important? Yeah. So I went down with him. He said, stop right here. Hey, he said, smell that? I said, yeah. He said, it's chemical warfare. I said, no, that's new moon hay. He had never smelled new moon <laughs> hay. But I gave him credit for reporting something that he didn't understand. But uh, it uh, just one of those funny things, you know, he didn't know 
what it was smelling, but uh, it was new moon hay. It wasn't gas. We Nobody had any uh, gas masks. We throwed them all away a long time ago. Although the, in World War I, uh, the Germans did use chemical warfare, if I remember right. Oh, they did not. Oh, they did not? Okay, I've been told that. Okay, I'm incorrect. I thought that had been I the case. I know they did not use any chemical warfare. The Geneva Convention says you won't use chemical warfare. Okay, and I yeah, I thought that they had in World War One. so I'm thank you for clarifying that for me. Okay. World War One, yes, not World War Two. Okay, yes, okay, World War One, yes, World War Two, no. Yeah, However, that's However, there was very cruel things, obviously, that were going on. Uh, so you've, uh, uh, pushing towards Czechoslovakia, uh, backing up just a little bit, I think maybe we missed one thing, and that is... Battle of the Bulge. My understanding is uh, Joe Conway, our contact that introduced us, had mentioned that he he thought that you were at Battle of the Bulge. Uh, were you? Battle of the Bulge. Oh, Battle of the Bulge. Well, we were pulled off the second free line and sent north. Uh, we didn't know where we were going, but uh, we didn't have adequate clothes. We didn't have rubber boots. We went up there and with about two and a half foot of snow, you got 20 below zero with a real heavy wet fog surrounding the area. We moved into the area where the 106th Division surrendered 7,000 men to the Germans. They were out of food, they out of ammunition. They had nothing, nothing else they could do. And that's the area we moved into. Our men couldn't dig a foxhole. they just dig a hole in the snow. They buddied up that way, give them an extra blanket or two. The only time they got out of that hole was when nature called or they'd volunteer to go on night patrol to try to catch a prisoner, which they never got any. They just went to get warmed up, I think. But anyhow, uh, that was, uh, we had no, no casual, very few casualties from rifle fire. We got a couple casualties from a treetop burst where the 88s would hit the top of a tree and come down splitters of, and, uh, and hot lead come down. Most of the men covered their foxhole with tree branches or anything else they could to keep uh, from being hit. But uh, we had uh, we had so much frostbite and the frozen frozen feet, frozen legs. Uh, we had ten ambulances, and I was afraid we wasn't going to have enough to keep these people back to the rear. It that was uh, that was terrible. So. Uh, uh, the story goes that Patton asked his chaplain to pray for a clear day, and uh, the following day, it was the same. With Patton said to his chaplain, did you pray for a clear day? And he said, yes, I did. Well, about 10 o'clock, the sun broke through. Uh, you could just feel the morale raising as that sun broke through. Airplanes were flying into Germany. We had an observation plane up spotting German positions, and uh, you, the men just took on fighting. It wasn't long till we pushed the Germans back to their starting point or beyond, and the morale was just just so good. But we knew we had to uh, uh, had to go back down and clean up the Siegfried line. Then we had the Moselle and the Rhine River to cross, which was big obstacles. Okay, you know what, Thomas Hoke? Let's go to to break then, and let's come. Come back and see if there's anything else that you want to tell us about Battle of the Bulge. And uh, then from there, let's talk about when you went back to clean, clean up the uh, Siegfried line, I believe that you said it was. So this is Kim Munson with the Americhicks. It's our World War II project. 
We'll be right back with Thomas Hoke, a combat medic with the 87th Infantry in Patton's 3rd Army. We'll have more of the World War II Project in just a moment. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. We are thrilled to have on the line with us Thomas Hoke. He was a medic in the 87th Infantry with Patton's 3rd Army. He was a combat medic. And uh, these are, all of these soldiers, very special people. But in particular, I think combat medics are uh, are certainly courageous individuals. So, Thomas Hoke, thank you so much. This is our final segment. Uh, in our last segment, we talked about Battle of the Bulge. You said after the bulge was completed. And, and so our listeners understand, uh, this was, the Battle of the Bulge was really Hitler's kind of last hurrah to try to push the Allies back. And so there was a bulge in the line, hence they called it the Battle of the Bulge. And it was fought, uh, I think, December and January, Thomas, if I remember right. And it was bitterly cold and so snowy. And you mentioned that you guys did not have the proper equipment. And the frostbite was, you know, everywhere. Just a question. How was it that you did not have the proper equipment? Patton was so much in a hurry to get extra troops up there. He didn't know how many troops he was going to need to stop that bulge. And uh, he sent us up there without rubber footwear or without adequate clothing. But uh, uh, I was one of the fortunate ones. I never spent a night in a foxhole. Worst come to worst, I would sleep on the floor of an old cold ambulance. But uh, oh, it's it just one of those things. He was in a, He didn't know how many troops he was going to need, and he was in a hurry to get us up there. And that's the only thing I can uh, relate to it. Okay, and then the weather was so bad that you could not get supplies, you couldn't get new new uh, um, clothing because the the skies were overcast. So you said that Patton had uh, uh, the chaplain pray for sunshine. The clouds broke at 10 o'clock in the morning. Morale was boosted and ended up uh, that you, you all were successful at Battle of the Bulge of pushing the Germans back. And you said you had to go down and clean up. What was the name of that line that you had to clean up after that? And clean the Siegfried line. Siegfried line. But uh, prior to that, uh, there's one thing I would like to say is. Okay. Now, what, what was. Oh. Uh, I forgot. I don't know. Yeah, we had to go back down and uh, finish off the Siegfried line before we started uh, to cross. Uh, Moselle and the Rhine. Okay. And what did you feel when you saw that you actually had had pushed the Germans back across the Rhine River? What went through your mind? As we crossed the Rhine. Well, the Germans was, was, the resistance was very little. You would come to a little pocket of resistance, but resistance was uh, very little. The German people knew that the war was lost, and uh, they, uh, they harass you more than anything else. I mean, they uh, really, we really didn't hit any stiff resistance once we got across the Rhine River. Okay, and then you said you're pushing towards Czechoslovakia. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, the the war, did you realize that the war was, on the European front, was coming to a close? On, uh, on May the 6th, uh, we got word to hold up. Don't fire unless fired upon. The rumor was that the Russians had met up with the American and British troops and that the war was over. Well, 
the next day, we, on May the 7th, we heard that the war was over. May the 7th is VE Day in Europe. May the 8th is VE Day here in the States. And uh, after that, uh, we went into garrison in the little town of Saldorf along the Saul River. It was a beautiful little German town. Uh, there was a big lake there where we could swim and boat or whatever. We moved half the Germans out of this town, and uh, we took over half of it. They were allowed to come in twice a day to feed their horses, cows, chickens, rabbits, or whatever. Uh, incidentally, uh, I was never too much for hard booze, but I'd get up every morning and go take some milk from that cow, strain some gauze bandages, and put it in my canteen. Tie a string on my canteen, drop it in a well to cool. Wasn't long the old German was complaining this cow wouldn't give him as much milk as she used to, but I didn't know anything about that. You didn't. <laughs> How convenient, Thomas Hoke. How convenient. <laughs> so the war is over in Europe, and uh, so what happens to you? What uh, what what happens after that? Well, uh, we stayed in that little town till about the middle of June when we got orders to go back to La Havre to a tent city called Camp Lucky Strike. And on the 4th of July, we were put aboard the Marine Fox, uh, a liberty ship. The ocean was smooth. The ship was clean. The food was good. You could uh, go to bed when you want, get up when you want, go up on deck, play cards, write letters, do what you want. I didn't see an officer for that whole nine-day trip. That was quite different from the day we went over. The worst nine days I spent in the service was going from over to England on the Louis Pasteur. We were put down in the hole, kept there. Ventilation system was no good. Uh, food was terrible. And you didn't have no bunks. You slept on tables or benches wherever you could. That was the worst nine days I spent in the service, bar any. Well, I... I uh... <laughs> I, I I can't imagine that people today even understand what it is that you guys all went through during uh, your experience in World War II. Now, so the the war is over in the Pacific Theater. Do you uh, are you getting any reports that you might have to go to? Or excuse me, in the European Theater, are you getting any reports that you might have to go to the Pacific Theater? We were the youngest division in the army, the first one home. We were given a. Uh, uh, we got home on July the 13th. We were taken to Camp Patrick Henry, gave him a steak dinner and a 30-day furlough, told to report to Fort Benning. We were to be on the first wave to hit the Japanese mainland uh, when Truman dropped the bomb on the August the 6th, when he dropped the first bomb. Three days later, when he dropped the third one, well, the war was over. I, uh, I know he saved my life. I, I'm sure of that. You know, I've heard that from a number of different soldiers. What what was your thoughts when you heard that the first atomic bomb had been dropped? Oh, I I, I, I don't know. I was just so so pleased, so happy that uh, I, I knew I knew the war couldn't last much longer. Okay. And I knew I wasn't going to go to Japan. Well, and the stories that that I've heard, and perhaps you'd heard those as well, that yes, the Germans were brutal, but the Japanese were. It was even worse with them. Had you heard any of those stories? The Japanese was much harder fighters than the Germans. The Japanese thought it was an honor to be killed. And uh, they had all these tunnels. Without the flamethrowers, we would have never won the war in the South Pacific. 
Right, because uh, they had to really do the air barrage before you guys could go on to the, uh, the islands. <coughs> For example, at Iwo Jima, the Japanese were burrowed in in all of these different caves, and they had all these tunnels, and so that, was, uh, that certainly was brutal. Uh, I, I figured it was an honor to be killed, where the Germans were not near the hard fighters that the Japanese was. Okay, so you have uh, you're back home then in the states when you hear that the first atomic bomb has been dropped. Yes, am I understanding that correctly? States when you heard the first. We were, yeah, we were getting a furlough. We were supposed to report back to Fort Benning uh, thirty days after we got our furlough. When I reported back, they were disassembling the division. I was sent to the ninety fifth division at Camp Shell in Mississippi, and. Uh, I was sent out as first sergeant, and the captain met me and said, I'll cut your orders for you. I said, I don't want the stripes. I said, all I want's out. I'll stay here and do the work until you get a man that was overseas with you promoted to first sergeant. Well, that took about three months. At the end of three months, he transferred me from the 95th Division uh, to the station complement in Camp Shelby, but he gave me a 45-day delay in route to get there. So he treated me real good, too. I was home for another 40-couple days. Okay. And uh, then you heard also that the second bomb had been dropped, that the war is over with Japan. What went through your mind at that time, Thomas Hoke? Well, nothing. Uh, I mean, uh, we were still in the service and still subject to whatever the Army wanted to do with us, you know. Mm-hmm. But we knew that uh, it, it was going to be a peacetime Army now rather than a wartime Army. Okay. And so when you get out of the service, um, what's it like coming home? Beg pardon? When you got out of the service? Yeah. What What was it like coming home? What was it like coming oh, home? Oh, I, I was... Uh, I was working in the x-ray department at Camp Shelby, and a lieutenant handed me a piece of paper and an envelope. I looked at the paper, and it said, Honorable Discharge. I looked down farther, and it had my name. That's all I cared about. I opened the envelope. It was travel pay there. So, man, I was home. And uh, after getting home a short time, I thought I ought to take the discharge to the courthouse and have it recorded. Well, I get to look at it. It has... One serial number on one side, another serial number on the other side. Awards I won is not there. Some that I didn't win is there. So I better look at my dog tags. I knew my name and address was right on it. Got to look at my blood type. Says I had type O blood. My blood's be positive. Glad I never gave anybody a transfusion. Oh, that's for sure. So what happened? I mean, how could you have that kind of a mix-up? What, what happened, do you think? They mix it up. Huh? How did they mix it up? I don't know. That's the Army way. You couldn't depend on anything that the Army said or did. Okay. I mean, it was, you had carks that didn't care. So they, some of them would work a night shift. Well, they'd quit. Somebody else come on. Not, you know, really didn't care a whole lot, I don't think. Anyhow, okay. I survived it. Well, that's for sure. At this point, I want to say thank you. Uh, what you and, and your generation has done for the generations coming uh, behind you, I mean, it's just, it truly is amazing. And I, it was hard and it wasn't pleasant and it was awful. And, and thank you for that. Now, Becky, your daughter has been helping us as well. So let's, let's talk a little bit about when you got out of the, the service, you went back home. Uh, yeah. What'd you do after that? 
Well, I, I had many, many jobs. I, uh, first of all, I stopped in, I worked in a grocery store and uh, poultry and, and stuff to be better on Balmer before I went in service. I stopped in that store and uh, to see the fellows that I worked with. Well, there was a young girl in there leaning down over the counter, so I gave her a big kiss, and uh, she ended up being my wife. Well, did you know her when you gave her the big kiss? Yeah, I knew her before. She used to live in Emmitsburg. Then she moved to Tiny Town with her sister, and I hadn't seen her for a long time. But uh, that was a, that was the start of. Uh, uh, I chased her until she caught me. <laughs> did you? Okay, well, that's good. So you got married. How many children did you have? I uh, I, I worked uh, in the shoe factory some uh, until the spring. I saw the boys coming out and playing baseball on the field. I couldn't handle that. So I had to get outside. Uh, as long as I had outside jobs, I was happy. I, I worked uh, on a fruit nursery farm for nine years. I dairy farmed for a couple years. I, uh, what... I, oh, I, uh, I ended up uh, working for Potomac Anderson Power Company as a heavy equipment operator. They, uh, 72, they was all passed that all electric to new homes had to go underground. They could dig the trench and put the wire in, but they had nobody to run a dozer to backfill it. So I, they hired me. I was about 48 years old at that time. Okay. Okay. And at what age did you retire? Yeah. What age did you retire? I retired at 62. My hearing was getting bad. I had a couple of men down the hole, and I was digging over hot electric, and I thought if I misinterpret what they say, somebody will get hurt, so I just better get out of here. Okay. My hearing is terrible. So. Uh, well, I, yeah, many of you guys in World War II, you didn't have any ear protection, so there, there, were significant, there was significant hearing loss with all of you guys because of you know, all of the guns and, and all that uh, that you shot near your ears. So there's a lot of hearing loss that there for sure. Uh, at this point, Thomas, is there any other stories that you would like to share with our listeners about World War II? I can't, uh, I really, really can't think of anything. Uh, I, I think we've covered the main parts. I, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Well, this is really, you've done, I mean, this is really a great interview and great information. How about today? Let's think about today. What is it that you would like to say to the young people in America today? I'm not very pleased with the, with the young people. They, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, this, yeah. Uh, Anyhow, let's, let's let that one slip. We'll, we'll let that one go. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll let that that one go by. How about when you see the American flag these days, um, or throughout your life, what do you think of? Well, I have a flag in my yard. I have a light on it. And uh, about four times a year, I put her half mass when the flag code says that. Although we did have it down for about 30 days for the ex-president when he died. Right. But uh, other than that, I follow the flag code, and uh, I put her down about four times a year, I think. I put it to half mass, sometimes for only half a day, sometimes for all day. Okay. And then uh, when you came back, you uh, gave this uh, this girl that you had kind of known a big, big kiss, you said. She became your wife. Uh, tell us a little bit about the family that you guys raised. Your family. 
Well, I uh, I married uh, I, I married Ethel, and uh, we have a son and a daughter. Uh, other than that, why they they're both raised, they're both out on their own. Uh, my uh, they at one time they lived one on either side of me, but they uh, no longer do that. So they sold those places. But uh, other other than that, why my daughter uh, checks on me every morning. Uh, when she was working, why she had another lady that would check on me every morning if I wasn't. They'd call on the phone. If I didn't answer, this woman would close her dry cleaning shop and come out to see whether I was all right or not. So, I mean, they really take care of the old man. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that, Becky. It sounds like you're doing a great job. And, hey, Becky, we only have about two minutes left. What would you like to share about your dad, who was a world or is a World War II veteran, a combat medic? What would you like to share about your dad? He's the light of my life. And I would like you to know he lives alone, he mows his grass, he prunes his trees, he puts a garden out, and that's what keeps him young. And how old is he? 95. He's 95. Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, Becky and Thomas Hope, thank you so much for this interview. It is truly an honor, and it is so important that we know our history and that we share our history uh, with the next generations. And that is one of the, the missions of this World War II project is to make sure that that uh, my generation and the generations after us know exactly what, what happened to you guys. And every story is unique. Every story is individual. And uh, it has just been a real honor to get to chat with you today. So thank you so much. Incidentally. Thank you. Incidentally. Are you still there? Yep, we're still here. I, I spoke three times at the World War II days at the Eisenhower uh, farm, uh, and they uh, they gave me uh, DVDs of those three speeches. So uh, I, I'm, you know, pretty well. He's well-known. Well-known around here. Oh, yeah. that, that's for sure. And you said you're really close to Gettysburg as well, which uh, I've only been to Gettysburg once, and that truly is sacred ground also. Um, Anyhow, thank you much, and uh, you have a good day, and uh, take care. I will. Thomas Hoke, thank you so much. Becky, thank you so much. God bless you, and God bless bless America. Thank you, and God bless you also. Okay, and so this is the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Uh, Be sure and check out our website, AmeriChicks.com. All of our shows are archived there. Uh, You can sign up for our emails every week. We send out emails with pictures of our vets and uh, their experiences. And uh, it's just really a a rich experience to get to listen to these stories. So thank you so much. This is the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. God bless you and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.